From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Get rid of this guy. Save the country. Your party is doomed. Your political career is over. History is going to despise you. You destroyed this country. I wake up in the middle of the night and I think, why were there not those 10 guys? That's Jill Lepore. She's a professor of American history at Harvard University, an author, and a staff writer at The New Yorker. This summer, she published The Deadline, a wide-ranging essay collection of her work over the last decade. She also recently wrote an explosive New Yorker piece about the failed prosecution of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. We explore the long-term resonance of Davis's escape from accountability and its relevance to former President Trump's many legal travails. We also talk about Lepore's work with Amend, a project to archive and research all failed attempts to amend the U.S. Constitution. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Evan. As a long-term devoted fan of you and this podcast, I have this question. Did Ginny Thomas get a pass from the January 6th committee? I haven't heard anything more about her since a brief account after she was interviewed by that committee. Is there a chance she may face some criminal charges from her role in the Stop the Steal efforts? Well, Evan, thanks for your question. Ginny Thomas, of course, is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas who was reported a little over a year ago to have had communications with Mark Meadows in the White House, uh, Jared Kushner, the former president's son-in-law, and some other folks in connection with some of the things that happened in the lead-up to January 6th. And she obviously has a particular point of view about what the election was and whether there was fraud or widespread fraud in connection with the election. Well, as for your question, does she get a pass? Well, I think that's too strong a statement. I think she did get some extra courtesy and solicitous treatment from the committee. It took a while for them to bring her in. There was a lot of swirling, I think, controversy over the fact that maybe she was being treated a little bit better than other witnesses because she happened to be married to a Supreme Court justice. In the end, she did testify voluntarily almost a year ago before the committee, and a transcript of her statements to the committee and her testimony was made public. In that testimony, you may recall, she talked about texts that she had sent to Mark Meadows about asking him to remain strong. She referred to the election as a heist. She also said that she was emotional at the time, and she regretted some of her actions and some of her comments whether she'll face criminal charges. 
Well, clearly in the minds of the January 6th committee, which made a bunch of referrals, she was not criminally responsible or criminally liable. According to an AP story about a year ago, quote, investigators did not believe she, Ginny Thomas, played a major role in Trump's efforts to overturn the election or his inaction as the violent insurrection unfolded. The report goes on to say, as is known publicly, her name does not appear once in the committee's final report released last week. Now, I don't think that's because of solicitousness. I think they made a determination that other people were more responsible. I think Jack Smith has made a determination that other people were more responsible. And same for the prosecutor in Fulton County, Georgia. Now, there's another person in connection with the saga who probably did get a pass, and that's Clarence Thomas himself. Because whatever the standard should be for charging someone criminally with involvement in the insurrection of January 6th, the standard for recusing yourself, if your wife has a direct association with and connection to those acts in that insurrection, even if it wasn't deemed to be high enough to meet a criminal standard, I think Clarence Thomas met. And so if there's someone you want to be mad at in this process, it's Clarence Thomas. And you'll recall, it remains to be seen what Clarence Thomas will do in a current pending case at the Supreme Court. As you may recall, Donald Trump's legal team has argued that he deserves absolute immunity in connection with January 6th, and that he's protected by the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution because he was already tried in the Senate with respect to conduct that occurred on January 6th. It's the view of a lot of reasonable people that based on Ginny Thomas's connection to those events, Clarence Thomas, her husband, should recuse himself. He probably won't, but he should. This question comes in an email from Chuck, who writes, I'm an avid listener of your podcast. I know you've discussed that Trump could tell DOJ to drop the federal lawsuits once elected. However, let's assume Trump is convicted in the two federal cases and the Georgia case before the election or before his inauguration, should he win the election. Once elected, can he do anything to quash or negate the convictions? That's an important question and one that becomes more real and tangible as every month goes by and as Donald Trump gains momentum in the polls, both in the primaries and in various general election polls we've seen come out in recent days. So if he's convicted in Georgia, there's not much he can do about it, even if he becomes president again, with one exception that I'll mention in a moment. And it's also true, essentially, with respect to the federal convictions as well. Now, I can imagine one scenario in which he appeals from one or both federal convictions, and for whatever reason, procedural, technical, or substantive, the conviction is overturned and sent back to the district court for a retrial. That happens from time to time. Maybe there's a mistake in the legal instructions that a judge might give in one of those cases. And an appellate court during Donald Trump's second presidential term, an appellate court sends it back to the trial court. Well, now it starts all over again. Obviously, in that circumstance, Trump could direct people at the Justice Department to not proceed with the prosecution, and it would end. With respect to the Georgia case, if there was a successful appeal and the case went back to the trial court for a retrial, similarly, the Office of Legal Counsel opinion might be operative, the one that states that a sitting president can't be prosecuted. That would apply to all three cases, the federal cases, and the Georgia case. But the main avenue for Donald Trump trying to avoid consequences for a conviction before he becomes president again, if he does, is the self-pardon. We've talked about this before. It's a controversial subject. It's never been decided upon by the Supreme Court, or I think not really any other court. Can you pardon yourself? This question came up and occupied the attention of some people at the Justice Department five decades ago when Richard Nixon was in trouble. And people at the Justice Department determined, not without a lot of analysis, that a self-pardon would violate the longtime principle in Western jurisprudence that one cannot be a judge in one's own case. That said, Donald Trump has suggested that he might consider it 
people close to him have suggested that he should consider it. So it's possible it would have to be litigated and it could take a while to be litigated. But that's the only way I can think of off the top of my head that he could do anything to quash or negate the convictions, at least the federal ones. I'll be right back with my conversation with Jill Lepore. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Jill Lepore's recent essay collection details her reactions to this decidedly historical period in American history. Over the next hour, we revisit the recent past. Professor Jill Lepore, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You know, it's crazy because I was saying this before we started recording, that when I looked up when you were last on the show, it's over four years ago. It was November of 2019. I don't know how that could be. Um, <laughs> well, that's pre-pandemic. Have a couple, couple, three things happened in the last four years, yeah, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in a new historical era. You have a new book called uh, The Deadline, and in it you write about time, and you say it was a time that felt like a time, felt like history. So before we get to what you mean by that, this last four years of not talking to you felt like a time. <laughs> How would you, and I know you're not, you're not into summarizing, uh, you write books and you write long-form essays for The New Yorker, but if you had to sum up in a few sentences, for someone who has been offline for four years since our last conversation, how would you describe the last four years? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I was recently trying to write a new chapter for, I, I wrote this history of the United States, These Truths, and yeah. I was revising it for a, a textbook, a college textbook edition. And they're like, could you add, could you add a chapter that gets us up to the present? And I was like, <laughs> I mean, yes, but no. Like, how do you make sense? It's so hard to make sense of... The feeling that much that many people around the world assumed, many Americans assumed, especially about the United States, turns out to be no longer an assumption, um, yeah. something that's up for investigation. It's really more of a hypothesis than an assumption. That It was really hard. It was very interesting to try to come up with that chapter. But I had also, during the pandemic, I started a reading group with I don't know, like a dozen political scientists, historians, mostly journalists actually called four years where we read a bunch of stuff about what had happened in the last four years. This was 2016 to 2020. 
And I, I went back and read my notes from those conversations because a lot of smart people had a lot of smart things. People who are maybe better than most historians at making sense of things as they're happening. Historians are terrible at making sense of things as they're happening. Well, so let's test that for a moment. Are, are there things that four years ago you predicted either in writing or in your mind that came true? And are there other things you want to concede you got totally wrong? Uh, an arena of writing where I have been sadly accurate has to do with the consequences of the cultural elite's embrace of Silicon Valley. So I wrote a piece, it was maybe 10 years ago now, 2013 maybe, about the idea of disruptive innovation. That essay is actually in this deadline book that was kind of critiquing what was really then largely unquestioned gospel, that disruptive innovation is how change happens and will happen and that it's a good thing and we should therefore defer and allow even more consideration for the demands put upon the economy and upon the workforce and upon the culture and upon our politics by uh, serial entrepreneurs. And, you know, I, I got really attacked for having a, criticized this idea, but I stand by it. And if you think about just say the last year with, you know, what's gone on with Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Sam Bankman-Fried, kind of the list goes on. Um, I think most people who would have defended the need to just make room for disruptive innovation rather than to ask questions of it would now concede that not necessarily that I would have been right. I don't think these are people that are going to concede <laughs> concede to me. Um, but he would now offer up a different position. So that's kind of to one side. I assume you're asking more about politics, but, but yeah, that that's was what actually, I was thinking. But that's yeah, interesting. So, yeah, about yeah. you know how Trumpism evolved and gained momentum even after a loss, or, or I don't know, maybe maybe you view it differently. It, does it have momentum, and and how do you think your predictions fared with respect to our own democracy? I think for a long time as a historian, I was pretty unwilling to answer the question that journalists always asked before Trump, which was, you know, is this unprecedented? There seemed to be a real journalistic tick right after Bush v. Gore to pull out your Rolodex and call whatever historians you might have heard of and ask, is this unprecedented? Is that unprecedented? And of course, 9-11 followed quickly on the heels of that election and was unprecedented, but that actually really escalated that, I don't know, that just the prevalence of that gesture. And as a historian, you know, things would keep happening. Like, oh, that's not, that's not unprecedented. You know, our partisan divisions, not unprecedented. You know, the risk of political violence in the floor of Congress, not unprecedented. You know, surging nationalism, you know, ethnic kind of nationalism within the United States, not unprecedented. So I I kind of, I, th I think I maybe idiotically prided myself on being, you know, the calm historian who was like, yeah, well, you know, the, <laughs> there's no other era that you'd rather have lived in. This, this is bad, but every other time before is worse, right? And I, I think that was kind of Pollyanna-ish on looking back on. Like I, I was, there are plainly things I thought were bad. I just didn't think they were, there was novelty in the way in which they were bad. And, and that changed for me around about 2018, when I just kind of gave up on trying to defend the idea that things weren't actually just getting worse and worse. So 
That's a sad, that's a very sad <laughs> answer to your question. So later in the program, I'm going to ask you about your prognostications for the, f- for the future, <laughs> but I don't want to, I don't want to do that yet. And I don't want to end on that because that would be um, too demoralizing. But, you know, you, you said something that provides me with a segue to talk about a super fascinating piece that got a good amount of attention that you wrote in the New Yorker this month, speaking about whether things have a precedent or unprecedented you wrote an article called, What Happened When the U.S. Failed to Prosecute an Insurrectionist Ex-President? And of course, you're talking about Jefferson Davis after the Civil War. I have a bunch of questions about this, but could you, to orient listeners, remind everyone, who may not need much reminding, but remind everyone who Jefferson Davis was and what the predicament was for the United States after that war with respect to him and others? Yeah, so Jefferson Davis had been an eminent American statesman, He had been Secretary of War. He went to West Point. He served in multiple American wars, became Secretary of War, was a senator from Mississippi. Um, And after Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860, Davis was among the leaders of the movement for what became the Confederate States to secede. He resigned his seat from the Senate um, in 1861, and then a few weeks later was elected or appointed and then later elected president of the Confederate States of America. So he was also commander-in-chief of the Confederate Army. In 1865, after Lincoln was shot, which was right after um, the Confederate Army surrendered at Appomattox, Andrew Johnson, who replaced, who had been the vice president of Abraham Lincoln, put out an order for Jefferson Davis to be arrested and brought to Washington for trial. He was suspected of having been involved in the assassination of Lincoln, but in any event, 750,000 people died during the Civil War. Uh, There was an expectation that really all the leaders of the Confederacy would be tried for treason. Military leaders could be be paroled. You know, there were laws of war that would obtain, but that many of the, especially the political leaders of the Confederacy would would be tried for treason, that this this was an important piece of the work after the war. So he was was captured and arrested. And I was, you ask most Americans, people probably know who Jefferson Davis is only because during the George Floyd era, you know, the big statues of Jeff- Jefferson Davis were yanked down by protesters. You know, the, the name kind of resurfaced or in, or in the last few years. But I think most Americans would probably assume he was tried for treason and kind of disappeared and, yeah, and spent his life not. in prison or something. But he never was actually tried. He was charged. He was indicted multiple times. He was released on bail after two years in a military prison. And then the trial just simply never took place. The government essentially dropped the prosecution I had not known that, and I, I just <laughs> so wait. Job, you hadn't known. You I hadn't, hadn't actually known that. Known that. I mean, but I don't. You're really, the his, you're the historian. I know. I really, you know, like you just kind of. I had just kind of assumed that there would have been a. Pro- yeah. You know that. Well, that's why we need you to excavate these things. Now, you say something in this article that that puts in words, I think, just as finely as anyone I've heard put it, and I've been talking about this subject for a number of years now on the podcast and on television and in writing, this question of whether or not there's anyone above the law and should anybody be above the law. And we say, and judges say, even in the Trump cases, no man is above the law. But you say, I think correctly, quote, the American presidency is draped in a red, white, and blue cloak of impunity. You write also, the insurrection at the Capitol cost seven lives. The Civil War cost 700,000. And yet Jefferson Davis was never held responsible for any of these deaths. And then you say... If Davis had been tried and convicted, the cloak of presidential impunity would be flimsier, end quote. What do you mean by that? 
Well, remember when the first indictment came in, Alvin Bragg indictment came in, and you know, there was again the whole flurry of, this is unprecedented. No American president has been criminally indicted. And, and, and of course, this has been through that now many times. Right. The or, fourth time, like, there are only three presidents for this. <laughs> um, and, and the question of whether Trump will actually face trial, you know, all these questions now, given the timing and these immunity motions, et cetera. A big piece of how Trump himself can mobilize his supporters to raise money for his campaign and whatever else he's doing with this money is to say, you know, this is unprecedented. Like, we don't prosecute former presidents. And in fact, we certainly shouldn't, right? Like, no one wants to live in a country where what happens when you get defeated electorally is that the new political powers prosecute you, right? Like that's, that is a terrible way for political life to take place. On the other hand, no one wants to live in a country where you are immune from prosecution, no matter what you do. And that's sort of, that's the country that we live in. And we're kind of on the cusp of living in either one of those terrible situations. But the thing, you know, I, I, I get as a person who is dispositionally conflict averse and who longs for political quiet, uh, and is really, more, I think we all do now. More of a reformer than a revolutionary. I can see. I will confess. I can see it being 1865. Yeah, I want Jefferson Davis to hang. You know, Lincoln's just been killed. Yeah, let's try that guy. Let, and then you know, well, you know, delays. What are there? A lot of seem to be some prosecutorial delays. Well, year, eighteen months later, two years later. Well, I mean, I just want to forget it all. Kind of get on. <laughs> okay. I can kind of get that, and yeah. I can get. I can sort of see how people could get themselves to that place, and yet that's a disservice. You have to. It's, you, it's a disservice to future generations. Like if this guy gets off, then who's gonna who's gonna get off next? And that's, you know, that's where I come down with. Like I, I wouldn't have wanted to be in the position of having to file charges against Trump, but because I think it's actually bad for re-election of Biden. Honestly, like I think the political cost is pretty high, but the cost. To our posterity is much higher to not charges, the insurrection related charges. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are no good choices here because of the conduct of the former president. It's the lesser of the two evils. Now, what I found endlessly fascinating, maybe because I'm a lawyer and a former prosecutor, is what some of the sort of complicated legal issues were that in part delayed and precluded ultimately the trial of Jefferson Davis, right? So if the idea, and this I had not known at all before, the idea is you're going to prosecute him for treason. That argument is undermined in part by the fact that Mississippi seceded from the Union, right? And Jefferson Davis engaged in all these actions after the secession of Mississippi. And if that was an operative fact, he couldn't have committed treason because, it's, you know, if you're the subject of one sovereign and you attack another sovereign, that's not treason. Do I have that legal complication correct? Right. That he was not a citizen of the United States right. during the Civil War. And therefore, there's no way you can prosecute him for treason. This was this was going to be his argument. So to hold the trial on the charge of treason would give him a public platform to insist on the constitutionality of secession, which in part was what was at stake in the war, right? Secession was completely inseparable from the question of slavery. But, you know, having just finally defeated the Confederacy um, and ended the institution of slavery, and now, you know, Congress is pursuing the what becomes the 14th and 15th Amendments, to have the leader of the Confederacy in a courtroom day after day after day going on and on about the constitutionality of secession, how important it was to defend the institution of slavery. Ugh, you know, the, 
the attorney general really didn't want to be doing that. Yeah. So that was a real argument. It was not a technical argument, but a real problematic argument. And it leads into the sort of second reason, it seems to me from your piece, why there was not ultimately a prosecution of Jefferson Davis, the fear and the alarm at the prospect of an acquittal, right? Yeah. How do people think about that? Yeah, I, I think they just thought it would it would undo the Union's victory in the war in a certain kind of way. And as time passed, it became more dangerous because early on, that was just Davis's argument. I wasn't a U.S. citizen. But later on, that was the argument of radical Republicans. So by 1867, you know, Reconstruction isn't really working. So Congress passes the Military Reconstruction Act, which is, all right, we're going to occupy the army, U.S. Army is going to occupy the South. The former Confederate states are going to be run by military generals. And that is because the South is essentially a conquered province. And there's a whole you know, er arena of law regarding conquered provinces. And we can conduct a military occupation of this. And we can therefore guarantee that Black men will be able to vote, you know, which is what they're kind of moving toward, right, with the enfranchisement of Black men. And so, and, and former Confederate officers won't be able to vote or serve or, or serve in office. So now if now the radical Republicans are like, shoot, whatever you do, don't try Jefferson Davis because the government, the U.S. government will have to say he committed treason, but is actually the official policy of the U.S. government that, could, that the former Confederacy is a conquered province, which which actually supports his defense. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, so there were actually real legal thickets here. It wasn't 100 percent a failure of a certain kind of will or was it? I think the immediate, the the slowing down, which was I think done in good faith, was was probably the failure. I think that you know Frederick Douglass blamed Andrew Johnson, who was a real sympathizer with the Confederacy, and said, you know, Johnson kind of contrived it this way so that we wouldn't, you know, that, so that he could avoid prosecuting Davis. I think Douglass probably right about that. Like the prosecution had been done. Before 1867 and military reconstruction, I think it would have been fine. But the other complicating factor by the time you get to 1867 is that there are black men on juries now, including the first the federal grand jury that prepares a kind of superseding indictment. And at that point, uh, a lot of the public appetite among white Northerners for convicting a man to death with a jury that's going to be six black men and six white men People don't have the appetite for that in terms of what kind of political violence it would unleash. So let's jump ahead to where you might see parallels. Does history rhyme? Is the predicament of Donald Trump in parallel or does it rhyme with the predicament of the folks who are considering the prosecution of Jefferson Davis, either in the initial delay or in you know some, some fear of what kind of political violence might be unleashed now? I think there's a lot of fear about political violence. I think there was a lot of hope. I, you know, I'm not an inside reporter. Like, I'm not the guy who can say, you know, the Justice Department took a really long time and they waited until the January 6th House Committee report before pursuing actual indictments. And why were they dragging their feet? Maybe they're just hoping that Trump would go away. That's how it looks to me from a distance, but I'm not like a you know, Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway reporter who can report that. I mean, I think there was a lot of reticence. It's going to be it's going to be a god awful mess to hold these trials, you know, and I I, I can understand the reticence. So I, I think there is some of that there. There is also 
the overshadowing issue, I mean, one of the reasons that people wanted Davis to be prosecuted was, you know, and this, I found this great letter from Francis Lieber, who was a constitutional law professor at Columbia, to Charles Sumner, the radical Republican Massachusetts senator, saying, look, we got to bring this guy to trial or he's going to run for president. He's going to be sitting next to you in the Senate the next time. <laughs> There's term. another parallel. He's going to run by 1868. You got, we can, he has to be held accountable. And I felt, I, th- I found that quite chilling because, in fact, you know, on top of what's going on with the Trump trials, there are these state efforts to disqualify Trump using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And in fact, you know, one of the things you see when following day by day the delays in the Jefferson Davis prosecution is the idea, oh, well, if we're not going to try him, you know what we could do? We'll just add this thing to the 14th Amendment that means that none of these guys can run for office again. And so it's just unbelievably painful to watch state courts say, eh, eh, that's not really what they meant. (laughs) That's absolutely what they meant. And like the disqualification argument, I think, is extremely strong. uh, And I don't think it's going to prevail. But so, yes, there's another, geez, it's not really a rhyme. It's unbelievably dissonant, right? It's like atonal music, like you don't want to listen to it. Right. You know, it's funny, when I was reading about these complications with respect to Jefferson Davis and the comparisons you're drawing to the predicament we face with Donald Trump now, there's another parallel that came to my mind. I don't know if it occurred to you also, because one of the controversies was what's the proper venue or forum to try Jefferson Davis, a military commission or not? And then all the pain and sturm and drang about how difficult it is to deal with this situation also arose with respect to the prosecution of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his co-conspirators on the 9-11 case, where there was a lot of hand-wringing. There was a decision to do it in the civilian court. That decision was overruled by the same White House. And nothing ever happened. And somewhere you cite to somebody who claimed that you know the entire idea of rebellion is perhaps beyond the Constitution. And I felt a little bit that way when we had the KSM debates a few years ago. And I guess my question to you is, how, how do you address the question of whether or not it's the case that the January 6th insurrection and all that flowed from it is arguably beyond the Constitution in the sense that the Constitution really didn't anticipate and contemplate such a thing. Yeah, I do think that's true. And and yet it's what we have. So we can bemoan that and regret it, but it's kind of what we have. And one of the ways in which I think it's useful to think through that as a problem historically and politically is that the Constitution was set up with Article 5, the amendment provision, which was sometimes known as the Peaceful Revolution Doctrine. The idea that Well, we do believe, and this is in our Declaration of Independence, in a kind of right to revolution, right? We we erect this government through our own consent as a people, and we reserve to ourselves the right to alter or to abolish it. Well, the abolishing was what the Civil War was about, (laughs) and people in the aftermath thought, hey, maybe that's actually not a good thing to just reserve, right? That's maybe seceding and having a revolution to overturn the government is not great. But what we'll do instead is amendment. So there's this amendment revolution, right? We get the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. The Constitution hadn't been amended in the previous 65 years by, you know, 1865 when the 13th Amendment is ratified. So, the, you know, the, the, the idea is, wow, okay, here's what we learned. We really need to amend the Constitution because it is the peaceful way to change the system of government. And if we don't amend the Constitution regularly, what we leave open as the only possible avenue 
is insurrection, right? That's always the, the, the hidden behind the amendment provision is the risk of insurrection. So we're living in a time now, the constitution hasn't been meaningfully amended since 1971. And so, so we're, you know, it's not as long a time, but, you know, past 50 years. And that kind of brittleness is a challenge, right? It, we we yeah. just know the ways in which these questions regarding fundamental rights are not resolved anywhere except by uh, five justice majority in the Supreme Court. And that's a really volatile situation. It's quite, it's the same kind of volatility that was evident in the 1850s. This is why you see historians on MSNBC all the time talking about the 1850s. I honestly don't think it's super helpful because uh, it just freaks people out. But in ter- as a matter of constitutional history, it is it is the relevant analogy. Do the counterfactual for a moment. Indulge me in it. Uh, because you suggest this point. If Jefferson Davis had been tried and convicted of treason or something similar, do you think we'd be recalling that precedent today and would it have a salutary effect on how we deal with former President Trump or not? I do think so. I mean, it would have unleashed a series of prosecutions, right? Everybody else's indictments were put on hold until it was resolved with Davis, and then they were all pardoned, ultimately. I mean, an amnesty, you know, we can be happy about a tradition of amnesty. But I think even, say, the Nixon investigation would have gone differently. You could also ask the counterfactual, what if Andrew Johnson had been impeached? So, you know, radical Republicans are trying to impeach Johnson at the same time, partly blaming him for the delay in prosecuting Davis. We forget that part of why the impeachment investigation was begun. And at that point, this Columbia law professor, Francis Lieber, <laughs> writes, he's to a friend, he's like, I wish they'd impeach the guy because, you know, it would be really keep saying we don't want to have to impeach a president. It would be such a bad precedent. And Lieber's like, no, it'd be such a great precedent. What would it mean to the world to show you have a leader who, you know, defies your constitution? You remove that person from office through a through a lawful process. That would be great. That would be great for American children to see like this. The same reason it'd be great to try Jefferson Davis and convict him. It would be great to show this is how the rule of law works. So, I mean, would it have been great? I don't know. Would either of those things, either, you know, a successful impeachment of Johnson or a successful conviction of Davis had led to a lot of political violence extended? I, you know, maybe. But we do know what did happen, which was that the South won the peace, <laughs> partly because Davis wasn't prosecuted, you know, partly because the message was, eh, you know, we disagree with you guys, but we don't disagree that much. Like, we're happy to concede that, you can continue to disenfranchise black men and women and, uh, you know, have a reign of terror against them. We're not going to deal with lynching. We're not going to um, realize the promise of the 14th Amendment. We're going to let you essentially ignore the 15th Amendment. I mean, I, I don't know. Counterfactuals are really hard for historians, but I have to think. Yeah, and put up all the statues you want. Right. You can you can tell whatever story you want about how great the Confederacy was because we just, you know, we don't really, we don't care enough to prosecute this guy or anybody else. So. I guess I do think history would have unfolded differently. I think Reconstruction might have gone differently. The sort of the myth of the lost cause would have had a different cast. You know, or you might say, people could say, another historian said, look, Davis would have been a martyr. This is the whole thing about Trump. Well, you're just making him a martyr. You're just increasing his support. I don't know. I don't know either. But, you know, it, it is not crazy, although I think you and I are in the same camp that we disagree. It is not crazy to think for the purposes of at least short-term or medium-term and maybe even long-term harmony and peace, we forego accountability and what many people would call justice. Because it's hard to know 
we're engaging this exercise of the counterfactual. Real policymakers and prosecutors and heads of state are doing that in real life and making decisions based on how they think plan A would fare versus plan B. And, you know, we can say 150 years later that they chose the wrong plan, but it's not possible to really know, is it? Yeah, it's impossible to know. And and I found, you know, reading the letters written by lawyers whose commitment to the prosecution of Davis was dwindling, kind of heartbreaking because I could see how they were getting themselves to this place. But I think in the absence of, you know, any way to know what the political outcome will be immediately or down the line, you have to do what the law says. Someone breaks the law, you got to pursue the prosecution. I'll be right back with Jill Lepore after this. Do you have a, a, a view about what will happen in terms of political violence if Trump is convicted on one, two, three, or four indictments? Uh... <laughs> Maybe that's not your wheelhouse, predicting yeah, immediate yeah. contemporary political violence. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I don't think it's anybody's wheelhouse. I mean, people make these predictions, but that, that's just because because it's what their job is. It's, it's I don't just don't think it's super helpful. Yeah, maybe not. I, I would be I'm pretty worried. I mean, I'm I'm ab, I'm absolutely worried. Like I, I I but I think I'm more worried at this point seems more likely that they're that he won't be tried before the election and that he'll just pardon himself of all the charges. That worries me more. Here's a, a thing that I'm curious about and that I don't know how to deal with. So Trump says crazy stuff. And he sometimes says them with a grin or with a smile or with, a, you know, a twinkle. And anti-Trump people, I think legitimately, because they think there's lots of signs of, uh, you know, strongman tactics and a love for strongman dictators. And they get all up in arms. And then the Trump supporters say, you know, there, go the, there goes the left again, overreacting and being silly and ridiculous. And so just one example in recent days is... In response to the argument and the claim that Trump wants to be a dictator, he says, I think in a very wily way, I don't want to be a dictator. And then he pauses for dramatic effect, except for one day, right? Mm -hmm. And he says it with enough sort of um, humor, and I'll grant him that, and and a wink that that the anti-Trump people go bananas, I think for good reason. And then the pro-Trump people go bananas at the left going bananas. Do you have a view on any of that and that tactic? Yeah, <laughs> it's a very tiresome dance. It is, but, but, you but know, he's very good at it. He's really good at it. And a lot of the media really hasn't learned that lesson, I would say. I think the whole kind of Trump derangement syndrome, uh, you know, if you go back and, and read that stuff, I'm sure if I read stuff that I wrote in 2015, 2016, I would say, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Wait, how um, so? How, how, what would the self-critique be about? I just think, you know, not getting it. Just not getting it. I think still not getting the appeal. I mean, I wrote a long piece when the January 6th report came out. You know, I sat, it was just this time of year. It was right after the holiday came out. I had a PDF. It was like 1,300 pages. I sat and read the whole thing. Everybody in my family was annoyed. Aren't you going to play Trivial Pursuit? Whatever. No, I'm, re <laughs> I'm reading this wretched I'm, I'm in a consequential pursuit, family. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of trivia now about the fake electors and, you know, the ginger mints. And, and what I was kind of fascinated by, my piece was mostly about, I mean, it was a very effective bill of indictment against Trump. But the committee, as a matter of, I'm sure, political compromise, specifically with, Lynn Ch- with Liz Cheney, just didn't didn't explain Jack. Like, <laughs> nothing was explained by way of his hold on his supporters, um, how people became convinced that the election was stolen, the, the means by which that idea was disseminated and supported, and an architecture of belief was built around it. There was just no explanation at all, even though the committee had held hearings that conducted investigation into, you know, the role of social media or whatever. So I think there's a real preference to focus on Trump over focusing on the nearly half of the country that supports Trump. And you think about the last two years where he sort of emerged from, you know, political exile doesn't really, you know, once the Kevin McCarthy handshake took place, like he wasn't ever really a political exile, but, you know, kind of has emerged as the leading contender for the Republican nomination. I I think you, we bear the costs of not having explained the half the country that supports him instead of focusing on him. And by we, I mean, you know, the press, but I also mean the academy, you know, people who study politics and and political history. I'm going to use this word that we, we don't love. And instead of talking about whether or not a particular event, like the potential prosecution of someone who's betrayed his country, as Jefferson Davis arguably did and as Trump arguably, arguably has, is, is Donald Trump himself a, an unprecedented figure in presidential politics? Or does he have, as a, as a figure and as like a, a particular kind of person who involves a particular kind of rhetoric is he is he unique? Yeah, he is unique. Thank goodness. I mean, I, I people try to make these kind of like Mr. Potato Heads using like George Wallace's eyeglasses and <laughs> you know Charles Lindbergh's bow tie or whatever. Like like you could if you put together a bunch of crackpots and wealthy businessmen and fanatics on the far right and Barnum like conmen, you could put together, you know, an orange Mr. Potato Head and get Trump. But I don't know, like, what's the, what is the point of that exercise? Like, yeah, the, guy is who, the guy is who he is, you know? Uh, I, I just don't, yeah. Well, to me, the relevance of the question is, um, you never know about the future, but if he is unique, one of a kind, sui generis, whatever other phrase you want to use, maybe if you're on a particular side of the fence, like I'm on, you can rest easier that when he's gone, there won't be another one like him. Or can you not rest easy in that respect? Yeah, you can't rest. I'm sorry. <laughs> you cannot rest easy. The party you're being, system you're is a downer again. I'm I'm sorry, but you know we the party system needs to be completely rebuilt. The Republican Party is sort of kind of over. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, what the party that calls itself the Republican Party is a completely different party. So. The Democratic Party is, I think, in significant disarray in its own right. And here, you know, to circle back to your, what do I think as a historian, I got right looking around in 2015 or 2016. You know, I wrote a piece called The Party Crashers that was about the dismantling of the party system. 
There are many forces that have contributed to the dismantling and hollowing out of the party system. But if Trump were struck by lightning tomorrow, the party system would still be in complete disarray and, and need to need to undergo, a, you know, a real wave of reform and restructuring. It would. But I guess my question is, if you're to be struck by lightning and go away, and if there's nobody quite like him who can speak to that base in quite the same way that he could, can inspire that base in quite the same way that he could, and instead are lousy facsimiles of him, bring to mind all the bad traits of the establishment, whether it's Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or anyone else, what happens to the expectations of that base when Trump is gone if there's not someone left to fill the void in quite the way that he was able to fill it? This is more wishful thinking on my part, (laughs) that the party has to change because there's no one there to be the Barnum for that particular base anymore, you know? And I don't know that there is anyone, or maybe someone will arise. Maybe it's Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm looking for optimistic theses on which to, to talk about a post-Trump Republican Party. Yeah, I think that there needs to be... Do you remember all those years when people thought, couldn't just like 10 Republican senators get in a room yeah. and agree to jump ship? Like, can't these yeah. people... I'll, I'll buy you guys dinner. Like, just 10 of you. I don't care who. Just like get some yeah. spine, save the fucking country. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. what? Where were those guys? Like, what were they doing all those years? Right? Even to, like during the second impeachment. Like, just get rid of this guy. Save the country. Your party is doomed. You know, your political career is over. History is going to despise you. You destroyed this country. Like that. Right? I have that. I still have that. I wake up in the middle of the night and I think. Why were there not those 10 guys? Well, Mitch McConnell, who clearly with every fiber of his being, every bone in his body, every neuron in his brain, despises Donald Trump, everything he's done to the country other than the Supreme Court and how he's destroyed the party. And whatever you think of Mitch McConnell, you know, he liked his party and he didn't even vote for conviction. Yes. Right. So- that's why I'm answering your, yeah, you're looking no, I, for hope with my. <laughs> there is no hope. I Mr. Barrara, there is no hope. <laughs> when, when it just did not, it just, what, how much would it have taken? Honestly, yes, you're not going to get reelected. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of hate mail. I mean, the whole sort of like Romney and Cheney memoir, well, they were fearing for someone was going to go to their house and attack their children. Okay, you ran for political office. You hold political office. Get your wife and children to a safe place and vote to impeach the guy. Like, I just, I don't forgive that. And I don't see, unless those people, unless you were to go around and scoop up, you know, the old, like... (laughs) octogenarian Eisenhower Republicans and have them make like an awesome, you know, save the world, (laughs) save the children video in like round song or whatever. Starring Jeff Flake. Yeah. There just has to be a different, (laughs) like Ben Sass is going to come out. Like, I don't, I I just don't, I don't see the stepping stones across that rushing river. Now, that's not to say that they're not there. I, I can't see them from here because I'm a historian. I'm too busy looking backward at that second impeachment and just still the betrayal that that involved of public office just staggers me. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of betrayals. I'm going to talk about something that you've already mentioned a couple of times, and that is a project that you're working on. I think it's called Amend. You're on Mm -hmm. sabbatical this year, researching all the ways in which the constitution has ever been amended or sought to be amended. And you said earlier in the conversation that there's been no meaningful amendment to the constitution in over 50 years. 
and that when the Equal Rights Amendment failed in the early 70s, um, something about that has rendered our Constitution essentially unamendable. Why, why is that? Well, the U.S. has uh, one of the most difficult constitutions in the world to amend, our federal constitution, and the lowest amendment rate, right? It just as a function of like how many amendments per year. It's been, there are 27 amendments and we're well over two centuries old as a constitution, which is, it's not that Americans don't believe in amending constitutions. State constitutions are amended all the time. I mean, just think about just the, you know, abortion amendments over the yeah. last couple of years. There have been 12,000 attempts to amend, proposals to amend the U.S. Constitution introduced on the floor of Congress as joint resolutions. There have been about 12,000 amendments introduced in the states in that same era. So 27 of those have been ratified federally. 8,000 have been ratified in the states. So, you know, a 75% amendment rate, which is about consistent with other countries around the world. So that's just written constitutions tend to be amended about that often, the same the way our state constitutions are amended. So you have a bunch of questions. Well, why, why is it so hard or why are Americans so reluctant to amend the federal constitution? Well, partly it's much more difficult than it was intended to be. The double supermajority requirements of amending the constitution were devised before the existence of a party system. So it's just much harder to reach those supermajorities um, when there are parties, and it's impossible when there are polarized parties. So, you know, there are just plenty of structural things you could point to. You could also look at this. There have been long periods of constitutional amendment droughts in American history. Um, amendments have come in spurts. But there's a pattern to the spurts. Usually there's like a lot of political agitation around a, a set of things and almost kind of revolutionary political agitation. And then it leads to a spate of amendments. The Civil War leads to, you know, these three amendments. The progressive era, the populist insurgency of the 1880s and 90s and progressive reform movements at the beginning of the 20th century lead to four, four amendments in just a few years. What's weird about our era, my lifetime, your lifetime, is the political revolutions of the 1960s and 70s did not produce constitutional amendments. They produced instead uh, Supreme Court decisions. That's the other way that we can change the Constitution. If you don't revise it, you can read it differently. So, you know, starting with Brown v. Board of Education in 54, you go kind of forward. There's more change in terms of uh, judicial decision making than there is in terms of amendments. But the people that pursued the ERA were like, all right, well, 1971, the voting age was lowered to 18. That's a 26th Amendment. And in a significant way, that has to do with the anti-war movement, which is a political revolution of the 1960s. So, you know, these people are like, well, we would try to get the Equal Rights Amendment since 1923. It was first introduced into Congress. We're going to push for it now. Goes through Congress in 1972, goes to the states for ratification, um, and is derailed by the Stop ERA movement led by Phyllis Schlafly. And we really haven't amended it. Well, there's been one more amendment, but it, <laughs> the 27th was introduced in 1789, and its ratification <laughs> was essentially just an oversight. It's kind of a great story. This kid at UT Austin wrote a paper for a political science class about how actually that amendment was ratified. <laughs> he, he got like a C minus, but then he went Wait, on. Wait, which one is 27? The, the, um, it's congressional, involves congressional salary. It was an anti-federalist demand in 1789. And essentially it's kind of like a paperwork problem that it never right. was ratified. Wait, anyway, he got a C minus? It doesn't minus? really count as a, he, yeah. But you know what? Uh, a friend of mine who I work with, guy who runs a comparative constitutions project went back and petitioned a couple of years ago for him to get an A plus. So 
<laughs> he got a great that's, change. That's another kind of great inflation. I, I remember reading once. A great inflation. You'll maybe remember this because you know and remember everything, but maybe it's apocryphal that the person who founded FedEx wrote up the concept of FedEx, I think in business school or maybe in a business class in college and got like a D or an F. <laughs> he should have his, <laughs> his grade amended as well. Yeah, that's funny. I wish I could go back and get some of my grades fixed. Um, I think he did quite fine, uh, <laughs> Professor Lepore. Is there a particular amendment or two that the country really needs? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, the progressives point to three, one for each branch of the federal government, just sort of like the top three, which, you know, uh, abolish the Electoral College, um, deal with equal, rep- equal suffrage in the Senate, and do something about the Supreme Court term limits or the size of the court, right? So those are the evergreens. In fact, those have been proposed from day one, and they're repeatedly proposed and proposed and proposed and proposed. Uh, but I don't think the size of the court is prescribed in the Constitution, right? No, no. So that isn't required. That you could do. You could do that congressionally. And in fact, the Senate equal suffrage is you can't amend that. Right? That's the one. Article five says you can't. The you, the one way in which there are two ways in which you can't change the Constitution. But one was that you weren't allowed to change equal representation, equal suffrage in the Senate. So that that's a really tricky one. You'd have to amend the Constitution before amending it. Um, and the other perennial is the kind of like, if a genie offers you three wishes, the first one you should ask for is to ask <laughs> more for wishes. more wishes, yeah. you know, ask for the constitution to be made easier to amend is a perennial ask. Progressives are actually beginning to make these amendment wish lists because the conservative movement to call for a second constitutional convention has has a lot of support behind it. And I think there are a number of legal scholars who will say that's quite likely to happen. Um, really? You know, in the next 10, 15 years. And if there's going to be a constitutional convention and it's going to be, you know, called for chiefly with a conservative agenda, then progressives ought to have, a, you know, a wish list to plan for the proposal for a set of rules um, instead of just wishing that it isn't going to happen. You know, you also have talked about, and we on the podcast have talked about many times, this um, trend line in the Supreme Court to base decisions, including the one on guns and, and many others, on the concept of tradition and history. If there was a tradition and a history of a particular regulation or encumbrance on a right or the provision of a right at the founding, then that makes all the difference in deciding a case or a controversy in 2023 or 2024. And so my question to you, I've been dying to ask you this question. Given the court's reliance, and particularly the right, uh, you know, the, the people on the right on the court, their reliance on quote-unquote history, and given your study of the court, and I will note also you're about to join, in addition to all the things you do now, the Harvard Law School faculty, so you have some standing in this area, how are the justices as historians? How would you, would you give them a C plus? <laughs> no, it's malarkey. I mean, it's egregious. <laughs> it's, it's, there's just no, I reserve the right to offer up all of the opprobrium available to me as a scholar of history for the court's <laughs> record on- Which is a lot. History. I mean, if, here's here's a number of things. Like, if anyone wrote a, a paper in history class in which they artificially constrained the body of evidence they were willing to consult in order to answer a historical question or problem to, you know, the, these five things because they thought they were the most important documents, you you would fail. Like that, it, history is a form of inquiry. It's not a just set of, set of justification. I mean, they're using essentially the met the methods of you know, the analysis of precedent and and pretending that it is an investigation of history. So the example I often give is so what they're interested in looking for, 
if you're just doing sort of straight originalism as opposed to the sort of history and tradition test, you know, you're looking at the Constitution, the records of the state ratifying conventions, Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, and the Federalist Papers. And if you're like a super sexy, like literate, you're going to quote Tocqueville and like you're going to think like it's cool um, that you were like broad minded or, you know, look at Samuel Johnson's dictionary from you know 1755 or where there's a kind of great moment where Robert Bork says he, he's kind of asked about this and he says, well, if um, if George Washington wrote a letter to Martha from the Constitutional Convention explaining what he meant by direct taxes, that would not matter to me um, because it's not part of the body of evidence that we use, which, you know, it, it, first of all, they were sequestered. Nobody wrote letters from the Constitutional Convention. But it's just a very bounded body of evidence. It just doesn't, what the notion is of, of the public involving the original public meaning is bizarre. So the example I give is, so Jane Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's sister, wrote him a letter right before they were sequestered in May of 1787, in which she's kind of making fun of the Constitutional Convention. She's like, if, if all you wise gentlemen involved in writing a new frame of government for us, maybe you could keep in mind that, you know, we would like you to beat the swords into plowshares. And she, she's suffered a lot during the revolution and the British Army's occupation of Boston. You know, women were raped by British soldiers. And, you know, if we wanted to be creative with our reading of Jane Franklin's letter to Benjamin Franklin, we could use it to think about violence against women. You know, the, the, this Rahimi case that, you know, recently involved gun rights and domestic violence, we could say, you know, he, well, uh, unfortunately, women could not vote, were not represented in any meaningful way, could not hold office, did not participate in any way in the debates over the ratification of the Constitution. But because they didn't, but we are their descendants and we're extracting ideas about the Constitution now, they're going to apply to women. We have to look at all the possible evidence that women left about their lives why do you use Jane Franklin's letter to say, you know, men who have restraining orders against them for domestic violence cannot own guns? Like, but you can't do that because of the, the narrow body of evidence that is considered relevant, right? Because none of the men at the Constitutional Convention said that. Because that's a letter written by a woman to a delegate, it just doesn't fall within the ambit of what the Supreme Court considers to be the historical record. It's crazy. But even within the bound, is it fair to say that not only is the record bounded, but it's also they're also selective within the bounded area as well? Yeah, they are selective within the bounded area because conceptually, so I mean, just a, the sort of the, the gun history and tradition thing, which is, you know, if, if you're going to have a regulation involving individual ownership of firearms, there has to be a historical analog for it. So if you want to say you can't have guns within X number of feet of nursery schools. You need to find something that's like that, but there weren't nursery schools then. Like it just, it's defining the problem in a way that makes it impossible for people that you disagree with to prevail. And then calling that justice, it's bizarre to me. I mean, a thing that might be relevant, honestly, to, you know, the AR-15 mass shootings are rules about hunting. I don't mean like bearing arms. I mean like regulations on what is hunting season. You know, how many deer you can take in a season. Like at this point, there are Americans who are hunting other Americans. Like if we actually want to, if, if we have to live by this insane history and tradition rule, we actually have to open that up and and think meaningfully about the world that we're living in and what could possibly what could possibly be an analogy to it? And it might be, for instance, 
the extinction of the passenger pigeon and just people going out and just slaughtering on a single day thousands of birds. Like that became illegal because <laughs> like that's the closest like, but why we should be torturing ourselves to come up with these just bizarre analogies instead of looking at the policy implications. I'm sorry, I'm now I'm just being irate, but no, that's okay. Crazy. But, but is this is this why you're joining the law school faculty to teach future judges how to understand history properly in the way you're describing? Uh, I've been teaching at the law school for a lot of years now, um, and I really like it. And I really like teaching. Could you teach students. at the Supreme Court? <laughs> <laughs> you do an extension school class, maybe for some of the, some of those folks. I want to ask you a question about sort of your personal writing style. First of all, I think you're wonderful to read. In all of your all of your writing is wonderful to read. But in your last book, you kind of address an issue in your own writing, and that is, and in other people's writing as well, and that is the degree to which if you're engaging in history or historical analysis or other kinds of political analysis, when do you tell stories about yourself? When do you become reflective? When do you tell anecdotes about yourself? And, and you talk about a kind of memoir that has bugged you in the past. And I'm going to quote from you here because it's a, it's a great set of lines. Quote, the tits out memoir where the only authority the author can imagine is the authority of personal experience. I watched a lot of fascinating women, scholars, investigative reporters, novelists, who had all kinds of knowledge about all kinds of things, end up writing instead about girlhood, womanhood, motherhood, and widowhood. I despise a lot of that writing, and I also love a lot of that writing. And I'm, I'm cutting off the quote, but that gives you a sense. Could you just elaborate on that? Yeah. Have you seen the trailer for American Fiction? I've seen the trailer, yes. Yeah. So it's a little bit of, of that, right? Like you, you come of age as a writer or a scholar and you kind of look around and you realize, I can see the way people who are like me get ahead. And that is the sort of vagina monologues or like the, the kind of, there's a certain, you know, Prozac nation or what, like this, there's a, there's a certain, like I was in graduate school in the 90s, right? So it was sort of like, oh, I see the like women who have public platform, look at big voices, like a, a seat at a certain kind of table, they're all writing about their body parts at some, and, you know, they're all writing about their experience of, of the physical, in some ways, the physicality of being in a female body. And it drove me nuts. And I felt like once I noticed that it just kind of happened and happened and happened. And I'd gone to graduate school to study women's history. I was, that's what I really wanted to do. And I just, I did an about face and was like, <laughs> damn, if I'm going to do that, I'm not going to do that. And I wrote a dissertation about this completely obscure war and then continued to just, you know, write about these topics that had to me kind of deep political and moral importance, but that were really involved turning away from a lot of things I was genuinely interested in. I was like, I'm genuinely interested in the vagina monologues or whatever it is. Like I, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in that in that work. And I got to a certain point in my career where I, I started thinking about what the cost was of of turning away from that kind of thinking. So this collection of essays has some of both. Yeah, I've written more personal essays since. It's not what I exclusively do, but this collection of essays is kind of a mix of those things, trying to kind of build a bridge between them. We've discussed lots of things that are um, naturally downers. One thing you're optimistic about, and if you, and if you can't say anything, we're going to edit this portion out of the podcast. 
Um, one thing I'm optimistic about. Uh, I think we're at the edge of a sweeping reform in local government and state government and a lot of creative ingenuity. Uh, I think a lot of people working in municipal and state governments are uh, acting in tremendous good faith. And I think we're on the edge of a kind of resurgence of local news and new attention and new humility on the part of the national news media around what local really means. I'm excited about that. I, I, I happen to be a fan of, for instance, the Vermont Digger, uh-huh. uh, which is a local paper. Um, I think they do tremendous reporting on uh, almost no money. Um, I think there are news organizations like that all over the country that are doing fantastic and exciting things. And I think they're on the edge of something great. Well, that's great. Because, you know, my view has always been that local reporting is essential to combat corruption in local office. Yep. Yep. And, and the rise in corruption can be, I think, directly attributed to, in part, the diminution of local reporting. So that's good. See? Yeah. We yeah. can be happy about something. Okay, good. Jill Lepore, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. My conversation with Jill Lepore continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, Lepore and I talk about her aversion to the massively popular film, Barbie. I have a problem with a kind of feminism that is a century old and markets itself as a new idea because in in a way, it's the worst possible representation of feminism. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Last week, I remarked at the end of the episode that the law isn't just about abstract concepts, but has real impact on real people's lives. I think it's important to highlight stories of how the law shows up in everyday experiences. So this week, I'd like to highlight the story of a young girl named Grace. Over the summer, a district court judge in Montana ruled in favor of a group of 16 young people who sued the state for violating their constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment by promoting fossil fuel projects. Grace, who just turned 20, is from Missoula, Montana. She was one of the plaintiffs who sued her state government in the case called Held via Montana. It really is a spectacular place because it is surrounded by mountains. It has a river running through it. And because I grew up in this amazing place, I spent a large chunk of my life outside. The lawsuit challenged a provision under the Montana Environmental Policy Act, known as the MEPA limitation, which prevents the state from considering the climate impacts of fossil fuel projects when conducting environmental reviews. The suit also challenged provisions of Montana's state energy policy, which explicitly promotes the use of fossil fuels. The lawsuit also relied on the Montana state constitution, which has special protections for minors. It has some special provisions, and and one of which is it's one of the only constitutions in the country that explicitly recognizes the rights of children under the age of 18 as having equal rights as adults. It is an explicit recognition that these rights are are for children and, and they're for young people and future generations. And the Montana Constitution really calls that out. That's Julia Olson, the executive director and chief legal counsel at Our Children's Trust. She represented the youth plaintiffs in Montana. In order to prove that the laws violated the plaintiffs' constitutional rights, 
they had to show that children are impacted by climate change. That's where Grace's story comes in. Grace played soccer growing up, and every August, her practices would get interrupted by wildfires. The wildfire smoke settles into the Missoula Valley, super dense, coming from Montana, coming from California, sometimes from Canada. And so it gets ugly, but it also gets uncomfortable and it's unhealthy to breathe at all, much less run around and kick a ball and sprint and all of that. Her games and practices would get canceled. But more than that, the smoke impacted her and her teammates' health. Feeling the scratchiness in my throat and my lungs and the kind of your burning eyes. And then also seeing it in my teammates with, especially those who had asthma and other breathing problems, weren't able to play at all. And so this really key part of my childhood was interrupted pretty regularly because of the increased wildfires that we're seeing because of climate change. Climate change can also impact young people's outlook on their futures, which can take a toll on their mental health too. I think I'm part of the generation who's grown up knowing about climate change pretty much as long as I can remember. I don't have like a distinct memory of of the first time learning about it. And, and I see the things that I stand to lose already beginning to change. I have this kind of perpetual fear of, of loss, which is a very <laughs> convoluted emotion, really. I have so much frustration that this is a problem that I'm even having to think about that this was a problem that wasn't solved 50 years ago. I also have frustration that the burden of solving this problem is being put on my shoulders even now. Yes, we have a problem, but no 16-year-olds, the other youth in our cases, we're not in positions of power. We shouldn't be the ones having to fight for this. They shouldn't have to fight for this, but they are. Here's Olson again. Every young person we represent in all of our cases at the state level and the federal level They are all experiencing harm and injury to their lived experience. Sometimes it's to their health or their homes or their religious practices. And so it varies across the young people. They they each have their individual unique story, but they're all harmed and they're all able to express it and talk about it and share it with, with the world and with these judges. Which is exactly what Grace did. She testified in a Montana district courtroom on the first day of trial. The room is this gorgeous old courtroom with like a balcony. It's lovely. Um, But it was full of people who had come from all over the state to support us. I walked up and was sworn in. And I was looking out and I could see, you know, all the attorneys sitting at a singular bench and all of the people behind them. And it, you know, it was a big moment in that I was nervous and I'm sure my voice was shaking, but I felt so assured by the fact that all of this support exists um, both in Montana and nationally, in my family and my extended family and all these other plaintiffs. District Court Judge Seeley's opinion was groundbreaking for environmental law. It struck down the Montana law, the MEPA limitation, that allowed the state to approve fossil fuel projects and ignore their impact on climate. And what that means practically is that now when the state is asked to approve new fossil fuel projects, which happens regularly, it has to take climate change into consideration and it has to take the Montana Constitution and this judgment in Held versus Montana into account and consideration. 
and I cried for about two hours after getting the verdict. Um, and I mean, I'm a big crier, so that's not that notable, but the biggest emotion that I felt in response to the ruling was relief, which is not an emotion that we feel often in the climate space because it's such an urgent issue that faces so many setbacks. A feeling of relief is intense, and I think it comes from me from the fact that this ruling in our case take some of the burden off my shoulders and places it back on the state. The state whose responsibility is to protect its people now has regained that responsibility, has been legally told to to maintain that responsibility. And so it no longer feels like it's my duty to be pushing for this. The setbacks continue. The state of Montana is appealing the decision. The simple fact that they're appealing the ruling indicates a lack of inclination to to do what I see as their their basic job, which is to protect their citizens, particularly the citizens who have fewer protections, you know, in the sense of economic and voting rights, et cetera, which is us as youth, the youth plaintiffs. And so I'm discouraged by the continued resistance from from our government. But you know, this is this is why we're going through the courts is because the government is bound by the law just as much as we are. This fight is not over, and we'll be keeping an eye on this landmark case. But it's inspiring to see young people stand up for their rights and tell their stories so that we can all understand how the law impacts their homes, backyards, schools, soccer teams, families, and futures. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jill Lepore. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producers are David Kurlander and Noah Azulai. The technical director is David Tatashore. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.